All right. Appreciate you guys having me back. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you would, join me in Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, we'll pick up at the beginning of the chapter um, and dig in. Last night I had the privilege of officiating a wedding. We actually did it in the um, big party room at Fat Daddy's in Conway, so that was, that was super fun, because um, you got like this restaurant bar area, and then they're like, is there a wedding in there? I'm like, yeah, and they're like, you're officiating, and that's where I have theology on tap every week, so they know me, and so they were not surprised that we were having a wedding in the big big room at this point, um, just like they're not surprised we have a Bible study in a bar, they just kind of, the folks at Fat Daddy's let me get away with a lot, um, but... I love I love weddings for a lot of reasons. Uh, the symbolism, the the opportunity that you have to show the gospel. Because oftentimes in weddings and funerals, there are people there that would never darken the door of the church, but they're going to show up to support the families that are involved. Um, I love the opportunity to celebrate, and there's always good food, and sometimes there's dancing, and there's music, and it's, it's just a great time. And um, I've done weddings kind of all over the place. Fat Daddy's um, inside a restaurant was the first I've ever done. I've done a wedding under a carport. I've done a wedding in a, in a backyard. And every time I think about weddings, I think about the first one I ever did. The first wedding I ever did... Um, a buddy of mine, I was a youth pastor, and we were going to a Lecrae concert in Memphis, and so I was taking the youth group down to stay at my parents' house, because I grew up in West Memphis, and so we're driving down, and on the way down there, a buddy of mine is like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm actually headed to Memphis. He said, sweet, on your way back, do you want to do a wedding? And I, <laughs> and I said, now, this is a buddy of mine I've known since I was like six, and so there are only a few friends of mine that I think I would be like, yeah, let me just pull the youth group over and we'll go to a wedding. Um, and he said, you want to do a wedding? And I said, maybe. Is there a backstory to this? Is somebody pregnant? What's, what's the story? He goes, no, it's our, our wedding. Do you want to do it? I was like, yeah. Sure, why not? So went to the concert the next day, um, loaded up the youth group, um, they attended a wedding in a backyard <laughs> in Hughes, Arkansas. I told him I was telling this story today, particularly for, the, for this, this part, and this part's always my favorite. So it's in the backyard, and they've got, you know, huge land, and it's real pretty, and everything's set up, the white chairs and the flowers, and et cetera, et cetera. And, like, there's the back door of the house, and then there's like the back porch area, the concrete slab that was their back porch. And we're, so we're having the ceremony with the families kind of sitting in the chairs and we're at the, the concrete slab. And when I tell you, like the back door is the distance between the stage and the window, that's important because the bride is coming out of the back door and joining us at the, the edge of this concrete slab. And they start playing the music, as per usual, for the bride to, to enter in. And everybody rises, as they normally do. And it's Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith. <laughs> Which, you know, whatever, to each their own. That wouldn't have been that big of a deal. 
but it's like a six and a half minute song, man. <laughs> and, you know, don't want to close your eyes and want to fall asleep, and you're like, oh, and you're thinking about Armageddon and Ben Affleck, and, you know, and you're sitting there, and, you're, and, and, it's, and then the problem is Mark is here, and Lindsay has shown up, and, and they're there, and I guess they didn't think through, like, someone needs to be in charge of the boombox. This is before, like, phones and iPads and all that. And so, like, here we are, and we're just standing there, and Stephen Tyler's like, Don't let us up! They just, like, six and a half minutes of Stephen Tyler going all octaves possible, and then we're just like, All right. Uh, uh, is it? No, song's still going, okay. Right? And so now, it's kind of a thing every wedding I have to go, Who's in charge of the music? <laughs> Mirror. Let's have a conversation, right? So that is among the strangest weddings I've been a part of. Um, but it doesn't compare to the strangeness that we're about to enter into. This is, this is by far the strangest wedding you've ever experienced as we get into uh, Ruth chapter 4. Um, you know, they're, they're dealing in chapter 3 with the kinsman redeemer, and they find out that there's a relative that's closer to Naomi than Boaz, and Boaz kind of sets off to solve this problem, and Naomi tells Ruth, wait, my daughter, the man will figure this out. And so that's how we get into Ruth chapter 4. Let's start in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, whom Boaz has spoken, had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, Sit down here. And they, So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, has, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know that for there is no one beside you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in, in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So, when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought her to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead to, in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from among the gate of his native place. Your witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together 
built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring of the Lord, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray. Father, please bless the reading of your word. Please do the thing that I can't do and open eyes and change hearts. Please help us to understand your text and to see you better and love you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there are a number of different things happening here. Boaz is striking a a business deal. There's an exchange of shoes. There's uh, redemptions and weddings and announcements. Uh, Again, it's the weirdest wedding you've ever been to. But there's three things I want us to see here. And for my type A note takers, here's your outline. There's first the transaction in verses 1 through 6. Next we're going to see the redemption in verses 7 through 10. And we'll see the blessing in verses 11 through 12. The transaction, the redemption, and the blessing. So starting in verse 1 we see first... The transaction. Boaz is seeking to solve a problem. There has been a proposal by Ruth for Ruth to marry Boaz, and immediately he is trying to navigate the law and be a person of integrity, and he sets off to solve the problem. You can tell the writer of the book of Ruth isn't really necessarily worried about chronology because it doesn't say, like, and then the next day or then this happened. It's like Naomi says, Daughter, wait, he's going to figure this out. And then the next thing, you see Boaz kind of coming to it. Now, the way that they're conducting business and the way that things are happening um, is drastically different than what we experience. So there's a lot of weird things happening. Why does he have to come to Gates? Why does he have to have 10 guys? What, what exactly is going on? Well, in uh, ancient Israel, this is the way that business was done. Everybody would kind of come either out of the gate and go into the city to deal with what's happening. The gate was the equivalent of maybe the Chamber of Commerce or the courthouse. This is where all the business of the city is conducted. And so everybody kind of starts their, gate, their day at the gate and... Here, Boaz knows that the likelihood of him interacting with the kinsman redeemer he needs to talk to is going to happen if he sits himself at the gate. So he sits and he waits. And then as the writer of Hebrews, or Hebrews, not Hebrews, Ruth. We're in Ruth, not Hebrews, in case anybody wanted to know. Um, The writer of Ruth um, does what he often does, and it says, And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. The writer of Ruth, as we've seen time and time again, loves to use this phrase, and behold, or, and it just so happened, or at this time, right? Like the idea that you're supposed to kind of indicate is God's provision at work behind the scenes, kind of knitting everything together. And again, not by chance, while it kind of seems that he's just at the right place, at the right time, about the time Boaz sits down, here comes the dude that he needs to talk to. It's as if the Lord is knitting together this plan of redemption or something. And so you see Boaz seeking to solve this problem. And we see four big things about Boaz. First we see that Boaz is a man of integrity. He's a man of integrity. 
it would have been real easy for Boaz to be like, hey, Ruth wants to marry me. I want to marry Ruth. We're in love. We'll, just, we'll go ahead and move forward, and if anybody says anything, we'll deal with it then. Right? That's kind of probably how we would have handled things. We would have asked for forgiveness rather than permission. <laughs> right? But Bo- Boaz isn't that way. He's a man of integrity. This is why he goes to the length that he goes to be o- obedient, to do the things that are need- needed to be done, to check the boxes, to make sure that he is um, not out of pocket in anything that he does. Boaz shows us something about the type of people we need to be. Second, we see that Boaz is a man of the law, right? That Deuteronomy 25 and in Amos and in other areas, you see there is a order in which things have to happen. That when in, in Israelite law, when um, a husband died, it was the responsibility of his brother or next of kin to go and take this woman to be his wife and have children on their behalf. And this was the Levite law. And in this, you see kind of this transaction of what everything that has happened, Ruth setting up herself in substitute for Naomi because Naomi's too old to have children and Boaz having to navigate the waters, you see, instead of him trying to find some sort of way to circumvent the situation, as we often do, some sort of loophole, some sort of way in which he can kind of seek his advantage and seek his comfort and seek things to be easy, instead he says, hey, the the word of God is the word of God and I'm going to follow it to a team. We see Boaz is a man of the law. We also see that Boaz is the better kinsman redeemer here. Um, In understanding the law of God and how um, the interest of the world works, Boaz sits these guys down because he knows he needs to get in front of the closest of kin, but he also knows that he needs witnesses. So he sits himself at the gate, he grabs this guy. It's, It's almost... The way in which the language uh, happens is like, hey, you, come here. Now, we don't know either they're just kind of used to this, kind of everything's happening real fast and there's a lot of buzz, or maybe Boaz, because of his clout, because of his position, when Boaz spoke, people listened. Either way, he kind of grabs this guy and says, hey, let me stop you real quick. I need to talk to you for a second. Back home, we would have said something like, hey, let me holler at you, Right? Let me holler at you for a minute. Like, in a minute, he's grabbing the Redeemer, and he sits him down. And then he knows he needs a quorum, per the law. So then he starts grabbing the guys that he, that he needs to get things done. If you've ever been a part of maybe a city council meeting or, or different things, you know that there's oftentimes, off in the corner, a, a secondary business meeting happening in order to make the motion of things that need to happen. Here, Boaz understands very quickly, I need the Redeemer and I need a quorum. Let me get you, 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 you. Everybody sit down real quick. Let's have this conversation. And then, understanding both the law of God but also understanding the integrity or the, the navigation of the world here, we see how Boaz unfolds things. He's only given him the information that he needs. Naomi has come back from Moab. Elimelech is dead. There's a parcel of land. We're the next of kin. I need to talk to you about buying it. 
you know, notice what he doesn't tell him. He didn't say anything about Ruth. Doesn't say anything about the threshing floor. He doesn't say anything about the proposal. He doesn't say anything about any, anything else. He's giving him the information that, it, that he needs in order to try to see if he can move forward in, in business. So I work full-time full for a digital marketing company, and I'm in sales. In sales, oftentimes, you have to reach a point to where you, you accomplish the win-win, right? You have something that you want them to buy from you, but you have to also make it attractive enough to where, where they want to buy it, right? Where they see an advantage to the investment. You have to have negotiation skills in a way that you're also being a person of an integrity because if the business deal unfolds and you start to realize that you're over-promising and under-delivering, then your customer is going to be angry with you. But if on the front end you're laying out the details Everybody can kind of have what's called setting proper expectations. You can kind of lay things down. Here, Boaz navigates the difference between understanding the law of God that's in place here, but also he's trying to work this in a situation to where Ruth becomes his wife. He maintains his obedience to the law of God even when it may not be in his favor. Notice what happens next. So he sits him down, and he lays out the land, and he says, if you're going to redeem it, redeem it. And the guy starts doing the math. He says, well, so I'm going to buy this parcel of land, and yeah, it's going to cost me a little bit of money, but then like, I'm going to be able to farm this land, and then I'm going to make more money, and so it's going to kind of increase my wealth, and it's just a parcel of land, and I kind of have a right to it. This seems like a really good idea. Yep, I'll buy it. And then in that moment... Everybody kind of gulps, right? Because now everything that we had the promises of in chapter 3, everything of this, this googly-eyed romantic moment between Ruth and Boaz that all the ladies in the room like to swoon over is, is in, in the balance because this is not romance. This is transaction. This is business. This isn't love. And in this moment, they're going, you're thinking, oh, no. He was supposed to say no. He didn't say no. Now to what do we do? And that's when Boaz says, great. Glad you are going to buy the land. Let me tell you what it comes with. Because in the ancient Israelite world, there was this connection between possession of land and family inheritance. If a man were to die and then his family not inherit his land, it was as if his entire existence was wiped off the face of the earth. If he had nothing to leave his family, if there was no trace that he actually ever existed, this was the worst of all possible scenarios. And so here, he would have not only had to have bought the land, but he would have had to have made sure that Naomi was taken care of, made sure that she was provided for, maybe even the prophet, by the prophet um, that he would make off the land, make sure she was cared for. But then there's this extra element. Notice what he says after he says, I'll agree. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead. So, can you imagine that as a date, dating profile, an online dating app? Hi, guys. My name's Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. 
In other words, hey guys, my country was the result of an ancestral relationship. Also, my friends call me the widow of the dead. Also, I have a really close relationship with my, my dead husband's mom. <laughs> Swipe left. Uh, so, um, like, in that moment, Boaz is being super strategic. Oh, yeah, you can buy the land. Let me tell you what all you're buying, though. You're buying the land. You've got to take care of Naomi. And then there's Ruth. She's young, she's pretty, but also she's a Moabite, and she's the widow of the dead. And notice this dude kind of backs up, oh, well, well, that's going to mess up my inheritance. Now, you would think, is this dude backpedaling? He is, but he's backpedaling for a reason. Because to, in order to marry Ruth, now he doesn't get to leave the inheritance to his kids when he has the land. The first child that is born to Ruth now owns possession of the land. So not only does he have to buy this land, have to cultivate the land, and take care of Naomi, but then he also has Ruth, and he's going to lose the land. His kids aren't going to get it. The child of Ruth is going to have stake and claim to the land, and it's probably going to cost him a lot of money and a lot of wealth to be able to upkeep this and take care of this. It's a, now, it's not longer a win-win transaction. It's a win-lose transaction. Boaz gets Ruth and Naomi redeemed, but this guy gets nothing out of it. But you also see something by means of application here as well. So not only do we see Boaz maintaining the obedience of the law even when it's not in his favor, but you see this, this redeemer remains anonymous because he wasn't willing to commit and risk the sacrifice. This is why Boaz is the better redeemer. Because when it actually cost him something, this redeemer doesn't really want to pay the cost. That's why you don't know who, what his name is. You see this all throughout the book of Ruth, that Orpah is just as open and able to receive the blessing of God if she were to go with Naomi, but she starts to count the cost and it's a little too much for her to bear. So she turns around and goes back to Moab, away from the presence of God, into her country, who God was real clear how he felt about. And then you never hear about Orpah ever again. Here, this redeemer, it would have been obvious in a, in a culture that is going to lay out all the lineage, that knows all the names, that knows all the family tree, that knows all the details. It's specific that this writer here doesn't give this guy a name. He's just the redeemer. Why? Because he doesn't do anything of significance to the history of redemption. When it came down to actually sacrificing, actually committing, actually being willing to give his life for the sake of someone else's, his wealth, his inheritance, his riches, for the benefit of others, he's not willing to make that cost. It's going to cost him too much. Where Boaz, as we're going to see, shells out money to get the land and to get Elimelech's son's lands and to buy Ruth and everything that is given because here not only is Boaz a better redeemer Boaz is a picture of Christ where we see Orpah and the redeemer 
look at the count, look at the cost, look at them having to give up something of themselves in order to find their identity here. They're very similar to the rich young ruler who when faced the cost bows his head and turns away because he's got too many riches. When it's the crowd in John 6 when they want to make Jesus king and he says, great, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood and they're like, no, I'm out. I'm out on cannibalism. I'm out. Right? Like They don't understand the cost. They don't understand the union. They don't understand the sacrifice of having to die to themselves and live in another. Here we see Boaz understands that and is a picture of Christ because it's ultimately in Boaz displaying a beautiful foreshadowing that we see a better redeemer. It's Christ that is the man of integrity. It's Christ who not only understands the law, but by his perfect obedience is able to give us obedience in the law. It's because Christ fulfills the law to the T that he gives us righteousness so that in Christ it's as if we've always obeyed the law. It's Christ who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and purchasing us, his bride. So here, in this transaction, we see beautiful pictures of what Christ would do. And that leads us to the second point, the redemption. Starting in verse 7, we see the redemption. Now was this custom by the former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, one drew off a sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attesting Israel, so that the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. And he drew off his sandal, and then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witness is this day that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malon, and also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. Here in this redemption, the writer of Ruth gives us great insight. He explains this custom of the exchange of shoes, and, and we kind of wish that's what happened, right? Like, you go to buy a car, and you got to sign your life away. You go to buy a house, and it's way worse. If I could just give you my shoe for the car, I'd be all in, right? All I got to oh, you just, need, you just need my old navies? Okay, yeah, let me just, right? But in this exchange, you see the fulfilling of Deuteronomy 25 here. You see this great transaction that everywhere that your, your foot would touch, this land shall be yours. There's this exchange. And here, in this declaration of redemption, Boaz places himself as the actual right kinsman redeemer, having fulfilled all the law's demands. Do you see that picture of Jesus? He holds up these shoes and says, I bought all this. All this is mine. And it's in this beautiful picture that we also experience this when we go to weddings, right? That you have the groom, that you have the bride, that you have witnesses, and you have the family. 
is exactly what happens when you go to a wedding. Like, dearly beloved, we're gathered here as witnesses to what's happening in this union. Now, he's caused enough commotion at the city gate that it's not just the 12 of them, Boaz, the Redeemer, the 10 elders, but now people are starting to kind of gather because there's a lot of commotion and there's an exchange. And they know what kind of what's been going on in the back, backdrop between Ruth and Boaz in the field and the threshing floor. And, and, you know, it's a small town of Bethlehem, so word is traveling fast. And all of a sudden you see Boaz kind of hold these shoes up and says, I have made this transaction. And everybody in the room that was really worried that Ruth wasn't going to get her, her romance now all of a sudden goes, oh, thank God, okay. I thought she was going to get bought by this dude. And here also, we see a beautiful picture again, how Christ redeems us. Notice what what Boaz says here, that he's buying this so that the dead may not be cut off. Remember what I said about how they see it as a perpetuation of their name, of their identity. That if their family didn't buy this land, if someone didn't step up and it just kind of goes out to auction and anybody buys this land is as if they never existed. Well, the Scriptures has some interesting things to say in this regard. Hebrews 13 tells us it was Jesus who bore our reproach outside the camp. Remember, it's Naomi who feels bittered. She feels broken. She feels empty. She feels reproach. It's Ruth who steps up in her behalf, giving her loving kindness and grace and mercy and saying, I'll step up as your substitute. But even in that, it's Boaz who takes all the mess, all the jacked upness, all the brokenness and says, I'll buy it. I'll redeem it. I'll make it right. I'll make it clean. All Boaz is doing is foreshadowing the very thing that Jesus would do, who went outside the camp took our reproach, took our brokenness, took our messiness on himself and made it right. It's in Ephesians 2 where Paul tells us that we were once cut off, alienated from the people of God, and without hope in the world. And yet it's Jesus who has brought us near It's in John 2 when Jesus is at the wedding of Cana and they run out of wine that they come, she comes up, Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, we're out of wine. And he says, my hour has not yet come, which is the equivalent of, hey, Jesus, we're out of alcohol. And him going, I'm not going to die yet. And and Mary's like, what? (laughs) Because in that moment, Jesus is looking at this wedding. He's thinking about his own. And he's thinking about what it's going to cost him to marry his bride. And he says, it's not quite time for this wedding just yet. But like the great hymn says, it's from heaven he came and sought her and made her his bride. We also see in this redemption application for our lives now as well. Knowing that this story comes smack in the middle of the time of the judges and was read every year at Passover, we see a loving reminder by God the Father through the Spirit that when we are faced with the reality of our brokenness, both in us and around us, 
When we feel like it's just one thing after another after another, that God is working all things together for our good and His glory. And we have been knitted together in the redemption that we have in Jesus. So that every promise and everything that's true about who Christ is and what He has done is true about those who have faith in Jesus. So not only do we see the transaction and we see the redemption, but we also see, lastly, the blessing in verse 11, verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. We see a beautiful picture of covenant renewal being had here in this exchange between the wedding party and the witnesses. This is what happens, right, at, at weddings. You first declare that we're gathered here to get today to celebrate this person and this person. And then you end the ceremony by saying, and by the power invested in me by the church and by the state and in behalf of these witnesses, I now pronounce, right? You make a covenant transaction and you see the same thing happening here between the witnesses and the wedding party. We do the same thing at baptism. Because it's in baptism that we baptize the covenant children and then call for the church to make a vow that you will come alongside these parents and you will help raise these children in the gospel. That we commit ourselves just as much as the parents commit themselves. That we want to see this child come to faith. Here the witnesses give a benedictive blessing, and let's walk through it. First they say, may the Lord make this woman like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah, the, the wives of Jacob, the ones in which the 12 tribes of Jacob come. Notice the callback here. Notice the relationship between the barrenness and the struggle that Rachel and Leah at different times experience alongside Naomi's emptiness and brokenness here. Do you think they understood where she was coming from? And then listen to that beautiful language that she moves now from barrenness, from emptiness to fruitful. That's the gospel. That we go from having no hope to life. That we go from being dead to being alive. That we go from being lost to being found. That we go from being broken to being put back together again. It's through Leah and Rachel that the house of Israel is built. And they make this promise not even knowing what they're actually saying. That from Ruth would come the one that was going to build the true Israel. Next they say, may you act worthily and be renowned in Bethlehem. This also comes back to this book 
Notice what he says here, that may you be renowned in Bethlehem. Well, he's going to be known in Bethlehem. One, there's an entire book telling his story. But not only that, he's going to be renowned in Bethlehem because it's through the lineage of Ruth that's going to come King David. The one that's going to be able to legitimize his throne by showing his family line. But even more than that would come a baby born in Bethlehem who is going to come and redeem the world. May you be, may your house be like the house of Perez. Now, this is interesting because if you understand the story here, Tamar wanted to marry Judah's youngest son, and Judah wouldn't let it happen. So Tamar dresses herself up as, shall we say, a woman of the night. And she makes it happen. And it's from the womb of Tamar that Perez and his twin sibling comes. But even more than that, it's from the line of Judah that the lion of Judah, the king, Jesus himself would come. Do you see time and time again, even in Boaz's life, Dan and I were talking about this this week, that even in Boaz's life, if you go to the lineage in Matthew, you see that Boaz gets here through ill issues. That Boaz is an outsider who comes in because it's Boaz who's born from Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute that hides the spies as they're entering into the promised land. Do you see how the Lord time and time again takes the messy, the broken, the jacked up, and the sinful and makes it good? That's the business that he's in. He's in the business of taking the broken, the jacked up, the messy, and the sinful and making it clean again. We see it at the end of Ruth. We see it at the beginning of Matthew. And as we close, we see these three great promises. That God is constantly at work for his glory and our redemption. That this entire story, as it's going to culminate next week, finds itself in a situation where it looks as if all is lost, but God is doing 10,000 things at one time, even when we're only aware of a few of them. Next, we see that our redemption is a story of a great Savior loving great sinners. That's it. That we are, just like Perez, and just like Boaz's family history, and just like Ruth's backstory and the country that she came from, and just like Naomi's brokenness, that that's true of each and every one of us here. That we are messy sinners who come and proclaim a great God that loves us anyway, who knows you and still chooses you and wants you. And lastly, we see that God is in the business of taking the broken, the messy, the sinful, and redeeming it for His glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the book of Ruth. Thank You that You show us time and time again that even when it feels as if we don't know what You're doing, we don't know why things are the way that they are, that we don't know how You're going to work things out, that You constantly show yourselves faithful, even in our unfaithfulness. And you call us to be people who rest in your word 
that follow your law even when it doesn't look like it's going to be to our advantage, that rest in the fact that if we will trust you, if we will put our rest and our faith in you, that you promised that you work all things together for good to those who love you, those who are called according to your purpose. May we see that in the book of Ruth. May we praise Jesus because of it today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.